Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. Uh, looking forward to meeting again in person. There'll be an email that goes out this week giving you an idea of when that will happen. It could be Sunday, um, but we will be discussing things as a board and communicate that information to you as soon as possible. Uh, we'll be in Job chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And let's pray together. Thank you, Father, we can come before you boldly, that you are God and holy, and we cannot approach you on our own, and yet you've made a way through Jesus Christ that we can be transformed, that we can be accepted into the beloved, that we can have access to your throne room of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Thank you for causing us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ and making us new creations. And we marvel over the creation of this world and the things that you've made and, and also over the new creations that you've made us to be by your grace. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our eyes to see your majesty, to see how awesome you are and how amazing it is that you would extend such favor to us who are undeserving of notice. And you have called us, you have blessed us, and you have plans for us that, could ex that exceed our greatest imagination. Thank you, Lord, for using us and for giving us your word and for bringing us to draw near to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up playing baseball. Those even unfamiliar to the game have heard the phrase, three strikes and you're out. Like, I don't know if you've, you've played before, but the ball that's pitched, it's thrown over the plate. If it's above the knees and below the shoulders, it's normally called a strike. And when you're down to that last strike, we were always taught you need to protect the zone. If there's a pitch that's even close to being called a strike, you need to swing because you could be called out. And it's better to go down swinging than to get caught looking. There's no way to hit a home run or to... Uh, drive in those runs if you leave your bat on the shoulder because you're afraid you might miss, because you're indecisive, you're unsure of whether this is the pitch you really want and you miss the opportunity. So the one who goes down swinging is the one who has the best chance for success. Better to take your best swing and strike out than to be left wondering what could have happened if you had swung the bat. Our text picks up in Job 12, and at this stage, Job is down, but he's not out. In the midst of such terrible trials, the loss of his wealth, his 10 children, his health, his friends, they came to him with an intent to comfort him, but they only accused him and wounded him with these baseless accusations that he was really the cause of his own suffering because of sin he was hiding. In their eyes, Job was under judgment from God. And they prescribed repentance for restoration. But Job had sought the Lord. He had cried out to God. He had followed him faithfully. Eliphaz, he offered some spiritual advice from a vision that he had. Bildad, he appealed to the wisdom of the ancients who had gone before them. Like these people who've gone before, they're wise and we should listen to them. God doesn't make mistakes with his judgment. And so far, he asserted that God would agree with him that Job was receiving far less than his sin deserved. And Zophar was especially harsh in chapter 11. He showed no compassion for him. And in light of these false accusations without evidence and these irrelevant arguments that they brought before him, 
Job was stirred to respond and he spoke boldly his case and he decided, I'm going to go down swinging than rather go down wondering. And he wanted to take his case before the Lord. He was, he was really done with arguing about the details with these people who showed him no compassion. And he just wanted to go to the Lord and say, let the Lord judge my case. And, um, his friends were confident the justice of God would condemn him. And Job was confident that the justice of God would vindicate him. So who was right? And we'll discover that in the end, only God would be proved to be absolutely right. That they all had their mistakes and their, their uh, flawed reasoning about what had happened. We pick up in Job chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. After what Zophar had just said about Job, that he was an empty-headed donkey uh, who would never be wise, this dose of sarcasm was really a measured rebuke by Job. And most, I think, would have ceased to speak with him at this point. They're like, you know what? It's pointless to even speak with you anymore. But Job, he was brave. He was courageous to continue speaking, to Continue a discussion with people who could not appreciate all that he had suffered. They claimed to be the ultimate source of wisdom. They gave him an unsolicited advice about what he could do to fix his problems. About why he was ruined and how the responsibility fell to him to change things. And Job's like, the points you're making, I know already. I understand these. My health has failed, but I still know what's right and what's wrong. He had spoken truly and honestly. They had made fun of him for it. They claimed he was full of hot air as they uh, assaulted him really with these straw man and ad hominem arguments against him. He had sought the Lord. He had humbled himself before God and he was truly a broken man. And they said, you know, we don't believe it because if you had really sought the Lord, you would have been restored. So they're looking at his situation and they're judging his character because of the things that he's suffering. And Job observed it was very easy to point fingers and to make smug accusations while you feel secure. He said in verse five that a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It's like the one who's sitting in comfort. They don't need the use of a torch. You say, do you need this? Oh no, why would I need that? They're not the ones who are uh, walking along, along a dark road who would actually have need of it. It's kind of like us who watch sport on television from the comfort of our lounge. It's very easy to criticize why that player, like we can see the mistake they made. We wonder what were they thinking? Why did they do that? Why did the coach call a timeout then? Or why, why did they do this? And they should have done that instead. It's very easy when, to, to criticize people who have skills far beyond our ability and who have knowledge and understanding way beyond us. And yet we we're so sure of ourselves, right? When Job's friends faced difficulties, he had been a light to them. 
He had helped guide them through difficult times, but in his struggle, they despised him. Verse 6, it counters Zophar's theory that if Job put wickedness far from him, he would be prosperous. Job points out there are thieves, there are robbers who are prosperous and wealthy, who are secure, and yet they do things to provoke God to anger. It's a fallacy to gauge our standing with God based upon our possessions or our wealth. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Both the righteous man and the unregenerate sinner both can get sick. Both can die from illness. It would be folly to justify the warlord who, who murders innocent people as a righteous man because he's wealthy and secure. It's just as ridiculous to assume that Job had sinned and needed to repent because he suffered loss and grief. We need to ensure that we don't fall into this fallacy where we look at what happens to someone and we go, well, they must be a bad parent. They must be a bad person. They must be a good person. Or they must be doing something right because look at how their life is turning out. It's all good. That, that is a fallacy. And so we need to be looking to the Lord, humbling ourselves before him, not standing in judgment of others, judging their character based upon what's happening in their life. Job 12 verse 7, but now ask the beasts and they will teach you the birds of the air and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you. The, and the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. It was Solomon who urged his son to go to the ant. He says, you sluggard, go to the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. You can avoid poverty by putting into practice the wisdom we see in the small insect. Job directs his friends, consider the lessons of all living things, birds, the earth that's teeming with trees, streams, seas, even the fish. He says the fish can teach you a lesson. The fish know about this, that they only exist. These living things only exist because God made them. God sustains them. God's wisdom, it's revealed in the soil under our feet and in the heavens above. And we, we do look at creation with wonder at the different instincts of just the birds by themselves or the fish that will swim way upstream to spawn where they had hatched. Uh, there's no manuals for spiders on how to spin webs and to survive, to catch their prey. And yet they do so. There's no books that are read by kookaburras. What's the ideal hollow to nest in or what's the right food to eat? But they thrive because God created them. God taught them how to communicate, migrate, feed and breed and raise young and survive. And our observance of living things tells us that life only arises from life. And we have God. He's the living God. He created all things. All life has come from him. It wasn't news to Job that God was behind his struggles. He's saying, yeah, God has done this. God is responsible for this. He is supreme. He supplies life to all living things. Daniel said to Belshazzar in Daniel 5.23 that he had not glorified God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. That God holds your breath. He owns everything about you. Job reasoned since God created all living things, 
that we and our breath are in his hand. All he suffered was by the hand of God as well. He was willing to receive both good and evil from the Lord. He didn't credit himself when he prospered and he didn't charge God with wrong when he faced evil and when he suffered. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and Job knew this by experience. And it's a good question for us to consider personally. Do I attribute this degree of power and influence to God over our lives and the lives of others and the lives of animals and the life that's on this planet, even the earth itself? And we can, we can swing from feeling absolutely hopeless, a victim of circumstances or under the attack of Satan to feeling the weight of the world and the future of this planet depends upon us and us having to do something. We feel responsible to change or fix others when we can't even change ourselves. It's an overwhelming prospect to try to be a savior of anybody. And we can't save ourselves, can we? We can't even save our own souls. We can't even keep ourselves from stumbling. That's what God does. Jude 1, 24 and 25, it says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Our decisions do make a difference, but who's the one who is able to keep us from stumbling? God. He's the one who keeps us upright. He's the one who has imputed to us his righteousness and his wisdom. He's the one who is the light of the world, who illuminates our path and teaches us where to go and how to walk and how to live, how to live in the way that fully pleases him. Who can oppose and fight against God and prosper? And who but God in his wisdom could have created all living things? Who but God could keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the Father with joy. We don't have this capacity in ourselves, but God does. And he rejoices to use all his strength to save, to change, to preserve, to help, to heal. Thus, who are we to criticize God or his ways? Job, he had length of days. He had understanding. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Job continues in in chapter 12, verse 13. And notice all the verbs, the action that God takes. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. 
If you look at leadership in the world, whether it's military, government, businesses, none of them even put together, fully paint an accurate picture of God's sovereignty and rule. They're, they're at best faint shadows of the sovereignty and power of God to rule over all. Think of a general, like he's not fighting on the front lines. He's not the one who is calling down the strike. He is usually far away from the battle and uh, making decisions that the commanders must enact. Business executives, they're not laboring in the plant. She is not working the lines uh, in, in the manufacturing plant and not selling the product, but working in the offices, in planning, in policy making, in uh, rolling out uh, adjustments to policy. Think of ministers of parliament. They're not going to each house and speaking to each constituent, giving legal advice or financial advice or parenting advice. That's not their realm at all. As overseers, they have very little control of each one. And, and, and the idea of God is in control. It's not like he's a puppet master. He's not manipulating things behind the scenes. He's not forcing things to take place because the God who gave man the freedom to choose, he is also free to do as he chooses. He has freedom to, to do according to his will at all times. With God is wisdom and strength, counsel and understanding. He just doesn't see the big picture. He's involved in the minute details of life with you personally and intimately. He doesn't need a status report, you know, like corporations. They have big meetings. People get together and they give their reports and they will uh, manage each person, manages employees and they send reports and those people report to other people. Well, God doesn't need these reports. He knows everything. He just knows everything all the time. And look at all these active verbs. Things that God does seem to us to be beneficial and good. And some things we wouldn't say is so beneficial. Like we want him to disarm our enemies, but we don't like the idea of being plundered, deprived, withheld from, or destroyed. But that's in God's control. I love that Jesus, he's the head of the church. He's also the servant of all. He has all authority on heaven and earth. And he used his authority to humble himself and make himself of no reputation. He's the one washing disciples feet. He's the one laying down his own life on Calvary for sinners so that they could be redeemed and reconciled to God by faith in him. He gave his own life as a ransom for sinners. That's how he used his power and authority, not to fly first class. It's because he is a servant of all, a lover of our souls, that he has come to us and he's revealed himself to us so we can have life. We don't deserve it, but he offers it because he loves us. The prophet wrote of God's wisdom and knowledge in Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. When we make measurements, we rely and put our faith, we rely upon and put our faith in instruments that are calibrated, right? We use a tape measure to determine the length of an object. We'll use a, a scale to weigh out butter in grams or cups for liquid measure. And we trust that this cup, it's, it's actually 240 or 250 mils. 
depending on which standard you're using. God doesn't need equipment at all to know how much something is. It would be foolish to think that you could just weigh a mountain, right? God doesn't need to weigh it to know how much it it weighs. He just knows how much it weighs. We rely upon math formulas and machines and published materials to establish facts, but God knows them without calculation. The God who created language, he's able to communicate with us. And I like when God revealed a secret to Daniel in a night vision in Daniel 2, 20 through 22. It says, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. We need light to see in the darkness, but God doesn't because he is light. He knows all things. Knowing God is so much more important than knowing secrets or facts. Sometimes we can put a lot of emphasis on knowing the secret things, seeking God to know the secret thing. But in knowing God, we know enough because we know him who holds our life in his hands. What point is it to know how much a mountain weighs unless you can move it? All the facts that we know, we can't do very much with them. But if we know Christ, we know enough to have life and eternal life by his grace. In Bible times, the measure of a cubit was the elbow to the tips of the fingers. Well, God measures the universe with the span of his hand. It's like from here to there. And everything else is, comp- uh, all that is beyond, I mean, all that was within his power and control and knowledge. Just go, wow, that is pretty, God must be well beyond my imagination that he could be that great, that powerful, have that much knowledge. He is the basis of all glory and power. All is under his rule. So praise the Lord that he is good. And he is in command. Job 13 verse 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to reason with God. But you are you forgers of lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent. And it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Job reiterates his knowledge of God and his understanding of all the concepts presented to him. He's like, guys, you're not telling me anything new. I know these things. I understand and agree with them. And he reasoned that with them as a peer, not a student to a teacher. And he really wasn't interested to debate his case with them at all. They weren't listening to him. They didn't understand him. I just want, Job's saying, to bring my case before the almighty God who will vindicate me. He's the only one who can vindicate Job in this case. 
his friends, they were forgers of lies. They were untrustworthy. They were worthless doctors. They had improperly diagnosed his condition and they were unable to offer any beneficial treatment at all. So what good was it to discuss things with them any further? If they would remain silent, they would show their wisdom, he says. Better to stay silent than to speak presumptuously and foolishly put words into God's mouth. Who knows a lie when he hears it and before it's even spoken. Job suffered. He was suffering mentally, physically, emotionally. Yet he didn't suffer ignorance from God or his ways. It's like Job put his knowledge of God on one side. And like those scales where you balance it against something else, he puts God's word and his revelation of what he knew of God on one side and the, the words of his friends on the other. And there was this imbalance. There was an inequality where they were not measuring up to the righteousness and wisdom of God. And something was very wrong. And Job calls this out. And he starts asking them a series of questions, these six questions, to caution them against deceitfully speaking for God to examine their motives in the fear of the Lord. Job knew God did not need them to defend him or to explain his actions, especially by false accusations and mockery. God knew Job intimately. He knew them too. And if Job was playing the hypocrite, God would certainly know. And God knew falsehood from truth. If they opened their mouth and spoke deceit, God would know it. God would rebuke them for it. The issue that Job took with his friends is they didn't listen to him. And then they justified God's actions against him by personal tax upon Job's character. That was an issue because the love of God and the fear of God were not in their words. And he wondered, would you dare speak to God the way that you're speaking to me? Would you open your mouth to speak these words to him? And it's a good question for us to think. Do we feel compelled to defend God when people slander or question him as if his honor and glory hinges upon you? That you're the one that must stand up to assert his honor and stand up for his glory? Cannot God stand up for himself? Many in their zeal for God, they have made a mockery of his goodness and grace which with harsh, rude, and insensitive comments to hurting people. And so what Job is saying, these questions are really good for us to consider our motives when talking to people who are struggling, who are hurting, and to put us off thinking that we know what only God can know. And we know exactly what God is doing and what this person should be doing. To get us out of that judgmental mindset and to be listening to those who are hurting. To, to actually care about how they're feeling, not just what they should be doing. Job said in verse 12, the words of his friends were proverbs of ashes. And ashes, the first thing when I think about ash, I like to barbecue. There's a, a, a decent amount of ash that's generated. It's filthy. It's dirty. It clings to everything. It's also very light. It just blows away on the breeze and it's waste. It's not good for anything anymore. It's, it, it's life has been spent. All the energy in it has been burned up. It's not good for cooking anymore. 
So he's saying, your Proverbs, they are a waste to me. They are just filthy. They are useless. He said their defenses were of clay. It's like clay can't even withstand a little rain, much less a real attack. It's weak. It's not strong. Job 13, verse 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then come on me, let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. As one who suffered, Job desired to be heard. He didn't just want people to be listening to him with the aim of breaking in and saying something, but to actually hear him out, to, to get to the bottom of how he was feeling and what he was thinking. He'd been honest. He'd been transparent with his accusers and he's willing to risk opening his mouth to present his case before God. I see him kind of like a, like a trainer and they do this for entertainment. They'll train a, a crocodile or a, a lion and the trainer will put their head inside the mouth of that, that, that strong, powerful jaws just to entertain people. Job's willing to put his life on the line to make his defense before God who created the lion and the crocodile. He's like, I trust that God is going to vindicate me. If I am able to give my case before God and lay out my points before him, he'll listen to me and he will justify me. It's kind of like instant replay, how it's used in sport these days. Many people called out. They appeal to the instant replay and they replay and go, oh, he's actually safe. They were vindicated in claiming to be safe because they were, they were indeed safe. So the call was overturned. And Job, he's willing to put his life on the line. He's saying, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. If God struck Job dead, he would not complain because he trusted that God is just. God is righteous. Can you say this? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if God sees fit to kill me, I won't complain about it because I worship him. I, I trust him. He is my life. At the same time, Job said, I will defend my own ways before him. Now, this is a much more risky prospect because uh, sometimes things that we do are not defensible. We sin. We make mistakes. We are the ignorant ones. We're the ones who think we're doing the right thing, but we've actually done the wrong thing. And we did it with the wrong heart. We said the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. Job's point is, I have nothing to hide from God who knows everything about me. My life is in his hands. Nothing can be hidden from him. If I'm playing the hypocrite, God will know. And in his, even if he was slain, Job says, he also shall be my salvation. Now, this is really amazing. What faith he shows that the God who can slay him, who can end his life, would be his salvation, even in death. He knew that God would vindicate him of false accusations brought against him. And the faith that he shows is so remarkable. 
considering he did not have all the advantages we have in having the word of God, in having Jesus manifested as the light of the world to us and seeing his death and resurrection. Job says, who is he that will contend with me? And he has really good company in saying this. The prophet wrote this concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 57 through 9. It says, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. It was Jesus who set his face like a flint, who went up to Jerusalem, who was falsely accused by the chief priests and Pharisees for blasphemy. He laid down his life knowing he would be vindicated, knowing he would be justified, that he would rise again, that those accusations wouldn't stick and God would raise him up. And Job's word, they remind me of Paul's posture in light of the new covenant in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 31 through 34. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Job did not have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't have the developed theology that Paul had of the gospel, but he placed the same faith in the same God who is savior of all who trust in him. God's worthy of all trust. Job grasped this fully. It's like he held onto it with both hands. He would not let go. He's like, the Lord is going to vindicate me. He is trustworthy. Our salvation, it's not like a ring that we could lose at the beach or valuables that we store away in a safe to keep them safe. It's God who saves us. It's he who holds us. He's got a grip on us. He's the one who we trust because he has our life in his hands. We're saved by grace through faith. The salvation cannot be stolen. It cannot be lost we are his and he keeps us. He holds us close. Praise the Lord for his grace and the faith that he provides to believe him and to trust him even when we face situations like Job where people seem against you and you desire to be vindicated. Job 13 verse 20, only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer or let me speak. Then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. 
There's a bit of a switch here where Job stops addressing his friends and he turns his attention solely to the Lord and begins to pray. He says, God, I just want to have a conversation with you. You either say something to me and I'll respond or I'll call to you and you respond to me. Let's discuss these things. And he asked God, don't withdraw your hand from me, nor let the dread of God put me in fear. Now, not all fear is the same. There is a fear that's selfishly fixated on ourselves. We're afraid for ourselves. And there's another fear that's born out of respect and reverence for others. So one is focused on others while the other is focused on self. Now, God appeared before the Hebrews on Mount Sinai, after he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, they had passed through the Red Sea, and he appeared on the mountain with fire, smoke, earthquake, the trumpet blaring loudly, and the people were terribly afraid. They were, they were terrified at this display of his power. And if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 20, we can read this. And I'll give you a second because I said turn there. Exodus 20, verse 20. Easy to remember. It says, And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Now, this seems a little contradictory, perhaps on the surface, where he says, Don't be afraid of God. He's putting his fear before you, so you don't sin. He says, don't be afraid of God to flee from him as if you don't trust him. This powerful revelation of God was like the roar of a lion that says, this lion is nothing like a domesticated pet, like a cat that just meow, like big difference between a lion and that cat. The idols of Egypt, they were nothing compared to the great God who saved them and gave him, gave them his laws. So they were commanded not to be afraid of God as if he didn't care for them, as if he wanted to destroy them or would harm them. Fear of God coupled by faith in him would move them to please him, to, to choose to obey rather than disobey because they realized he is worthy to be feared. He is great and awesome in his power. That he is not to be treated like a, a dumb idol that does not speak, that just sits there, that must be carried around. He is alive. He is powerful to save and to destroy. Job asked God to converse with them, like speak to me, respond with words. And he wanted to know if his sin had contributed to his, his losses and even the sins of his youth. I mean, he was starting to think about his life. He's like, oh, you know. I'm walking with the Lord now, but I didn't always walk with the Lord or I didn't always know him. And I, I said foolish things and I did foolish things. And he's not asking this out of curiosity. Like, okay, what is it? What am I in trouble for? It was because he would repent of it. He wanted to know it so he could turn from it. If, if he was responsible for sin, he wasn't aware of. He said, Lord, please show me where I've erred to the end that he would repent so that he could not repeat them in the future. A true penitent is willing to know the worst of himself so they can repent and change their ways. There's been plenty of times that people have pointed out our faults and we refuse to own them. Job is asking God to show him. He felt like God had hidden his face from him. He had been silent. He wasn't speaking. 
And in faith, he had the courage to ask. Maybe he felt like we do when you're in the middle of a text message back and forth, emails back and forth, and you go out there and you, you say what you think, and then it's silent for a while. And you wonder, oh, did I overshare? Did I say something that would be offensive? Was that insensitive? And as the days passed, you're wondering, hmm, did I, did I do the wrong thing? Have I been understood? Is this? And so you reach out at that stage. And Job is calling out to God. He's saying, God, let me know what's going on. He considered God responsible for his suffering, that he is sovereign over all and silent. So he felt like God was against him. And compared to God, he's like, I'm like a leaf at the mercy of a breeze. I'm, it, it wouldn't be hard for God to drive me away like stubble, which has no chance of taking root or being fruitful ever again. Like it's, it's not a real fair fight, this one, where he could just blow me away. And wh what could I do to resist him? Was it for sins of my youth? He says, I'm like a prisoner in the stocks. And the stocks usually serve two purposes. It was to put you in an uncomfortable and vulnerable position for a period of time where you couldn't move. And it was also public humiliation. And both of those would be fitting in Job's case that he's stuck in his grief He's stuck in his pains. People are mocking him and shaming him. And his friends are accusing him of doing the wrong thing. And there's nothing he can do about it. He's just stuck there. Like many of us, when we pray, when he says, God, speak to me and I'll speak to you. He asked God, but then he kept talking. He didn't like wait for God to speak. Something we can do. He just continues speaking. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth eaten. He viewed his situation as really beyond repair. Like that moth-eaten garment is full of holes and ruined. In his suffering, Job gives us a great example of faith we ought to follow, knowing that his only hope for vindication was from God alone. He wasn't going to argue. He wasn't going to try to fight with people. He wanted to bring his case before the Lord. He was willing to go down swinging before the Lord, because he is just and worthy to be feared. From the cross, in pain, Jesus called out the first uh, verse of Psalm 22 that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was written by David. And made me think, was David really forsaken by God? Or did he just feel forsaken by God? Well, I would say he felt forsaken by God, because in verse 21... He says, you have answered me. So if God had forsaken him, he wouldn't have answered. He wouldn't have responded to his call. So God is near to those who cry out to him. God will not forsake his beloved. As followers of Jesus, we can know God will never leave or forsake us because of all he has done and that he is faithful to do all that he has promised. Jesus poured his life out on Calvary so that we can know God loves us and he is with us. Read of that in Romans 5.8. Jesus was delivered us. He, he delivered, was delivered up for us and with him will give us all things. And we who are guilty and deserving of death and punishment for our sins, he has given us the hope of eternal life, changed us from within and making us born again. And we can know him and he lives in us. Please turn in your Bibles 
to this prayer and benediction in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Such a great passage. Where we go from Job's prayer now to Paul's prayer. And we know that prayers prayed according to the will of God are answered. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The God who created us, the God who does things past finding out, he can be known by us. His love, the, the great it's like almost four-dimensional love here. The width, length, depth, and height. His love can be received. Better than going down swinging to be vindicated by our efforts. Praise the Lord. He justifies and vindicates all who trust in him. You will be vindicated, believer. Because he is ours and we are his by grace through faith. So let's praise him. Let's glorify him. Let's attribute his Mighty works to him, knowing that he is our only savior. He is our only helper. He's the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think now and forever. Let's thank him and praise him. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word and this, this example of Job and the faith that he had to look to you in the midst of difficulty, believing that you were the cause of it, that you had enabled him to suffer to this point and that you preserved him and, and even despising his life, you held him fast. You kept him close. It wasn't the strength of Job's grip on you, but you holding him, you, up, you strengthening him to endure. Thank you, Lord, that we can know the love of Christ with all the saints, that we can be filled with the fullness of God, that you do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. Lord, you are awesome. We praise you for your goodness, praise you for your love and, and forgiveness and for the grace that you've shown us and by speaking to us, Lord, and by giving us promises that we can lay hold of by changing us and making us new creations. Lord, we want everyone to, to understand these things and to walk in them and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be filled with the fullness of God. Oh, how great it is, Lord, to know you, to be accepted by you, to have a hope of life with you now and forever. And so we, we just bow before you, Lord. We give you uh, all the praise and honor that we can because you are worthy. You are holy and good. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to uphold your word, your faithfulness to keep on loving, to keep on calling out to us. And we pray we would respond with great joy, 
knowing that you are good. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, wherever they're watching throughout the world, and uh, those at Calvary Chapel Sydney, I pray that you would fill us indeed with the fullness of God, that we would walk in your ways and glorify your name now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you.